This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Sheshla. Welcome, welcome. It's Fresh Thinking time, Thursday afternoon, and uh, we'll try to do something just a little uh, unusual. I mean, everything we do over here is unusual. Isn't that the whole point of Fresh Thinking, to think about things in a fresh and different way? Love to have you with us here on the show. So if you've got something to say, here's your place to say it. And at this time of the year, everybody's talking about how cold it is. So let's talk about something that warms the heart. Let's talk about, and I'll extract it directly out of the Torah portion this week. One of the things that we read about this week is challah. So if I say challah, uh, besides the fact that your mouth probably starts to water, when I say challah, what do you think? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Or maybe let's put it in a, a little different terms. How would you translate or define the word challah? Let's start with that. Somebody told me something very, very intriguing today that I hadn't actually thought about, that there are apparently a lot of local bakeries who on a Friday sell challah, even though it's not kosher, <laughs> which is a little bit ironic, I suppose. right? But what does challah mean? What is challah? So let's start our conversation with that. The goal of today's conversation, the goal of today's uh, fresh thinking hour is to explore challah and how it helps a person get their head right. Now, not just eating it, but the concept of challah is there to help a person get their head right and help you de-stress, get rid of stress. And uh, maybe you've got some thoughts on how all of that works, and it's not just about comfort eating. So, but before we can do any of that, we're going to have to talk about what this thing is. What is challah? If I say challah, what do I mean? Please join the conversation. As always, you can SMS 34519. You can WhatsApp 0618951019. You can phone into the studio if you've got something really, really meaningful to say about Khala. It's 0101403020. And you can Twitter, you can tweet at Chai FM. You can tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. I'm just laughing because uh, there's an SMS over here from somebody who signs his SMS as Gimple the Fool. And he says, Chala u Akbar. <laughs> is that, is that a religious Chala? <laughs> is, that, is that what it means? <laughs> definitely, definitely a good sense of humor we have here in the, the fresh thinking crowd. So what is it? What does Chala mean? What does it mean? Not, I suppose you could say what it means to you as well. And it's Thursday afternoon, so it's safe to talk about challah because you don't have to salivate for too long. You can already have some tomorrow evening. But what does it mean? What's the significance? How is challah a de-stressing tool? That's what we're going to be talking about today, you and I together. And I'd love to hear your views, input, and thoughts on the matter. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Sheshla. All right, so I know what's going to happen. You're going to talk about challah, and there's probably some kind of Pavlovian response. The minute you hear challah, you, you start feeling hungry or heading out to your local kosher bakery to get some. So what is challah? When, when we talk about it, and, and the goal over here today, as I said, is to speak about challah as a tool against stress, not just the eating of it. So what is challah? You speak to most people, as we call it here in South Africa, or some people do, we call it kitka. 
Challah is, for most people, a twisted or braided bread that is eaten by Jewish people on Shabbos. And then it has a different shape when it comes to the festivals, when it comes to Yom Tov. That's how everybody understands. That's the definition that we use. That's what challah is. But is that the whole story? You know, very often we find our community does this a lot, that when, God forbid, somebody's not well and they need some kind of special energy of healing, you often find that people make challah baking evenings. Now, what is it about the twisted bread that's going to help somebody if they need a special blessing in their life? What is it about the challah bread that is considered to be one of the most spiritual things that a Jewish woman can do is challah? What, what is it? What's so special about it? What, what does it signify? And I'm sure we can get some of the women to weigh in on this. I mean, you probably make challah from time to time. It's a beautiful thing to do. You know, once upon a time, everybody used to bake their own bread. But in today's highly manufactured reality, it's a, it's a nice thing to take out uh, to take some time and, and just make your own bread. And it always tastes so much nicer when it's baked with love than when it's just bought off the shelf. So, but what's the significance? What does the whole thing represent? Where does the name challah come from? That's probably where we should start this conversation. People think that challah is the name of a bread. That's what's evolved over the course of history. But originally, challah is actually the name of a procedure, a ritual that is performed when you bake bread. That's actually what challah means. So the ritual works like this. If you're baking either in your private home or if you're a baker and you produce over a certain quantity of dough, then Jewish law says, and it's, this is the part that comes out of this week's parasha, uh, this week's Torah portion, Jewish law says that you then have to Pull off a certain size piece of dough. I'm not going to get into technical stuff right now. I'm talking more about the concept, okay? So you've got a whole bowl of dough that you're about to bake into bread. You've got a responsibility then to remove part of the dough. In ancient times, when the temple stood in Jerusalem, you would then take that little bit of dough and you would give it to the kohanim, to the, the priests, to the spiritual representatives of the Jewish people, whose job it was to work on our behalf in the temple. Today, we can no longer do that. We no longer have the temple. So that piece of bread, that piece of dough that we remove, we actually dispose of. Typically, we burn it until it's inedible. So it's very clear that it doesn't belong to us. And there's a message in that. And the message is not everything that you get belongs to you, something that Judaism reinforces quite a lot in various ways. You get money, you give a tithe to charity. You grow things in your field, you give a portion of it away to the um, clergy, so to speak, and to the poor. So likewise, you've got this concept of the, the piece of dough that you have to take, and you've got to give it to the Kohen. And today, you still remove it even though you don't give it to this. That's actually what challah actually means. So challah doesn't refer to the kind of bread it is. Challah refers to the process of taking a piece of dough and dedicating it to holiness, dedicating it to God. In the old days, you would have given it actually to God's representative, the Kohen. So it could well be that the name, and this is conjecture, and maybe somebody can argue for or against, but it could well be that the name challah became associated with the bread that we have on Shabbos once people were no longer baking on a regular basis and still made a point of creating an opportunity to do the mitzvah. That's what you're supposed to do. That's how a Jewish person is supposed to think. How do I find an opportunity to do the mitzvah? So 
You're coming up to Shabbos. Shabbos is a holy day. It's the appropriate time to create more opportunity for mitzvah. It's an opportunity. It's a way of getting us from the normal work, tedious week into the spiritually elevated experience of Shabbos. So a great way to segue from the week into Shabbos is let's even make the food that we're going to eat on Shabbos food that has some additional spiritual meaning to it, some additional mitzvah value to it. And it could well be that that's why the name challah became associated with the bread that we have for Shabbos because that was typically the time. You know, you're preparing for Shabbos. Do it yourself. Bake the bread yourself. And then that gives you the opportunity also to do the mitzvah of separating the dough. So challah is not originally the name of a bread. Challah is originally the name of a process. And I'd like to explore that process with you because it contains within it a magnificent insight into how to avoid stress, not only for the 24 hours of Shabbos or for the period of time that you're eating that delicious challah, but actually challah is a, it's like a focus of your mind to allow you the opportunity to think differently all week long, and we need it because we know that our stress levels are way too high. We know that a lot of the time we're under pressure and we're worried and we carry anxiety and we think that there's potential danger around every corner. So it's very useful, and there are all kinds of techniques that are out there about how to just calm yourself and get into a good headspace. But the truth is, challah is an underrated tool for de-stressing. That's what we'll explain. That's what we'll explore over here. And I'm gonna, I'll, we'll start it off with a, a really intriguing and, and bizarre perspective. Uh, bizarre, I think, just to, to us, to our Western minds. And that is, where did challah originate? So the Torah tells us that you have to take challah. That's fine. We do know that there are 613 observances that a Jewish person should observe. Some of them are unavailable to us today. In context, because we don't have the temple. Some of those are observances specifically for men, and some of them are observances specifically for women. Now, challah, that process of removing that piece of dough as this mitzvah, is a woman's mitzvah. We're told that there are three Intensely powerful experiences that a woman can engage in through mitzvah, through spiritual process, and they are really unique to women. One of them is the challah process, the other is the mikvah process, and the third is lighting Shabbos candles. Now, what's interesting about this is people don't realize that even though these are women mitzvahs, they're not only for women. Well, certainly not challah and Shabbos candles. So, for example, if a man lives alone and there's no woman in the house, then the man lights Shabbos candles. It's, it's, it's as much his responsibility as it would be for a woman. And the same thing applies with challah. If a baker or if you at home are baking bread and you happen to be male, you still have the obligation to separate this challah dough. So how did it emerge that challah became a women's mitzvah. What's the backstory? What's the history? Why is it the responsibility? And I'll tell you an interesting thing. It's directly linked also to the other mitzvahs that a woman has. They all basically track back to the same seminal moment where women were given these certain responsibilities. So what is it? We know, for example, that the... Uh, okay, you don't forget the example. Let's, let's get... Cut to the chase. So when 
back with the original couple when they ate from the tree of knowledge. We know that it was Eve who brought the forbidden fruit after she had eaten it and presented it to her husband who then ate. So Eve is the one who brought the fruit to Adam. And the results of that were disastrous, as we well know. And part of the result of that was that death came into the world and that men were going to have to work in order to provide. It wasn't just going to fall off the trees. So that's a little bit of a clue as to where Chala came from. Don't know if you do know the rest of the story, but if you do, it would be great for you to share it with us. You can SMS 34519 or you can WhatsApp 061-895-1019. Otherwise... You know what to do on Twitter, at Chai FM or at Rabbi Shish. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Okay, so in our exploration of what the meaning of Chala is so far, there was a clue. The clue is that it has something to do with Adam and Eve. So the Talmud says very interestingly that when Eve came and presented that forbidden fruit to Adam and he ate it, so he's got to share and shoulder some of the blame as he does. Can't just say, she made me do it. You have to take some responsibility as well. So when that happened, the Talmud says Eve caused damage to the challah of the world. So that's the way that the Talmud describes Adam in that particular interaction. Isn't that strange? The challah of the world. I could think of a whole lot of different ways to describe a person, particularly the first human being, other than to call him the challah of the world. So what do you think the Torah meant when it said the challah of the world? Uh, just imagine you had to tell somebody that they remind you of a challah. I highly doubt that they would take that well. They would most likely think you're body shaming them. That That's just my guess. <laughs> the challah of the world. It's not a term that we would necessarily use today. So what do you think it means? Incidentally, here on Twitter, Flora says that challah is an approach to Shabbos. Indeed, doing the dough is relaxing. I don't feel it as a duty. In my mind, challah equals Shabbos time. That's very, very nice. That's nice. So I think there are many people who will say exactly that, that they find it to be quite cathartic. At the end of the week, you get your hands dirty, you dig into that dough, and it's fantastic. So uh, my question was, challah as a de-stressing tool. But right now we're at the point in the conversation where the Talmud makes reference to the fact that Eve gave Adam the forbidden fruit to eat as she contaminated or, or harmed the challah of the world. That's a, that's a very strange way to define. Let's see if we could be creative here for a second. Let's see if we could work out what are the properties of bread. Because remember, challah is not only a term that refers to the Shabbos bread, but challah also, or primarily actually, represents the process that you're supposed to, the mitzvah process that you're supposed to undergo every time that you bake bread. So what properties would you say are there about challah that relate to the creation of the first human being? If the Talmud calls that first human being the challah of the world, there must be a whole bunch of reasons for it. And one of the reasons is because the characteristics of challah, the characteristics of bread, the process of baking is something that is akin to the process of making the first human being. So what product did God use as his basic product from which to build the first human being. We all know this, right? Because what does it say? It says that Hashem created, that God created Adam 
afar min ha'adama. He created him as dust out of the earth. So if you think about it, there, there's this, just think about dust. You can't really build anything out of dust. Uh, maybe dust bunnies, right? What can you build out of dust? Nothing really. But if you, and, and the reason you can't build things out of dust is because dust doesn't stick. It, it's a whole lot of these disparate little tiny pieces, molecular pieces of stuff. If you want to build something out of dust, if you want to build something out of sand, the first thing you need to do is to add liquid. If you mix in some water and you turn it into mud, into clay, well, now you can actually start to form it into something. And there's a great similarity between the chala process and the process of making man. Man was made out of dust. But how was man made out of dust? God first turned that dust into some kind of clay. He turned the sand into some kind of mud that could be fashioned into a particular shape that would then be brought to life as the first human being. So it's that dust or sand plus water that turns into the product from which man is made. Exactly the same as the baking process. You start off with flour. Flour is very similar to dust. It's also this granular kind of material and if you want to actually bake something out of it the first thing that you need to do is you need to add water you've got to add that that liquid that brings it all together that turns it into dough anybody who's baked a decent dough you'll know what it's like you pick up one part of the dough and the whole thing starts to lift out of the bowl or sometimes even lifts the whole bowl with it so you've gone from something which is granular to something which is solidified that's one of the reasons the talmud associates adam the first human being with challah, with a baked product. That's going to be our first clue. Okay, so hold that in your head. The first clue that we have is that it's the movement from a granular separated material to a doughy connected material. Okay, fine. So that tells us something about challah. Before we go any further on this, we're actually going to analyze the word itself. And Judaism words are incredibly powerful, not only because the words have meaning, but because each letter within every word has meaning. And often the significance of the letter is expressed in the shape of the letter. In fact, there's, there's even a guy overseas who has a whole yoga process where the yoga poses mirror Hebrew letters. Because we understand that the shape of a letter represents the energy of that particular, whatever that particular letter conveys. So if you want to understand something about a concept in Judaism, a really good place to start is by looking at the letter formations that make the word. It will tell you a lot. So if you, if you can visualize, if you know your Hebrew alphabet and you can visualize the word chala, it's three letters, and those three letters are a chet, a lamed, and a hay. Now, out of those three letters, two of them are almost identical. The first and the third letter are almost identical. The chet letter is made out of two vertical bars and one horizontal bar. So it's almost like an upside-down U. Okay? So if you don't know what the letters look like, you can picture it now in your mind. It's like an upside-down U, but a more, a more angular U. So everything's at right angles. A hay is Almost exactly the same, except that the left vertical bar is not solid. There's a gap. So it's half the size of the right vertical bar. And there's a little gap between that bar and the roof of the letter. Okay, that's the, the, the difference in appearance between a chet and a hay. So chala, the word chala, starts with a chet, 
ends with the hay. That implies some kind of a transition from the one style of energy to the other style of energy. Now, before we get carried away with ourselves, we probably need to identify, well, what is the different style of the chet energy compared to the hay energy? And the clue that you need for this is probably something you've heard before. But if you haven't, it goes as follows. We know that there are two kinds of bread that we use in Judaism. Regular bread, which we use most of the time, and flat breads, which we use during the holiday of Pesach. So the name for leavened bread is chometz, and the, the name for flat, unleavened bread is matzah. Now again, if you know the Hebrew, chometz and matzah have three letters each, and two of the letters are common to both words, matz, chometz, matzah. Okay, so those two words, those, sorry, those two letters are common, the mem and the tzaddik are common to both words. That means that the only difference between chometz and matzah is the chet of chometz versus the hay at the end of matzah. There you have it again. Two letters really similar to each other with a slight modification and a huge significance to that modification. If you are at all aware of what the difference between the chet and the hay means, what it represents, if you've ever heard that before, share it with us. Love to hear if somebody out there knows the famous Chometz Matzah Vort, the insight that says the spelling is the secret of understanding the difference between them. Uh, go ahead and share that with us on a WhatsApp, 0618951019, or you can SMS 34519. Pick and pay Hyper Norwood have these pocket-saving sweet deals just for you. They've got pick-and-pay kosher raisin rib for 139 rand 99 per kilo. Nori kosher brisket, 150 grams, is at a very low 44 rand 99. They've got fresh pick-and-pay fresh loaded and gutted hake for just 79 rand 99 per kilo. And pick-and-pay kosher lean mince is 89 rand per kilo. And their frozen petite hake fillets are 69 rand 99 per kilo. Catch these and many more specials in the store. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Nord Hyper and only while stocks last. Pick and Pay Hyper Nord is the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. It is 29 minutes to the hour. It's Fresh Thinking. You're with Rabbi Shishla. And we're talking today about challah, not just because everybody would love to have some. And maybe you've got a really good recipe. We should we should have probably run a contest on the show today, right? Who could provide the best challah recipe? And best would mean easiest to make and best tasting. So we're talking about challah and we want to explore how challah could be this incredible de-stress, detox kind of thing that a person should have in their life. So far, where we're up to is we're just analyzing the word itself. Take the word challah, chet, lamed, hey, that's how it's spelt. And you'll see that the first and last letters of the three-letter word are almost identical. And if you want to know what the significance, because every letter in Judaism is significant, of the, each of these two letters is, well, here's where we're going to start. Chometz and Matzah. Chometz is leavened bread. Matzah is unleavened bread. They're almost identical, except that the one's got a ches where the other one has a hey. What's the difference? Okay, so again, picture in your mind. You've got this chet letter. It's three sides, a top bar and two sidebars. That means that it's open at the... That's open at the bottom. And so we're told that the chet represents a person who is in a situation where they have only one direction that they're moving, and that's down. They're spiraling out of control. They are devolving. 
That's what's represented by the chet. Now, the hay is almost identical. It's also got three bars, one at the top, two on either side. It's just that the bar on the one side doesn't reach all the way to the top, so there's a gap. That means that this is a person who has potentially two directions that they could move. They might well fall, but they have an escape hatch. They've got this little window at the top of the one side of the letter, which is a window to opportunity, to growth, to connection to God. So why is it that one person is locked and is only headed downwards, whereas the other person has the opportunity and potential to escape? So chet belongs to the word chometz. Chometz is leaven. That's a bread that's got yeast in it and it has risen. That, we're told, represents arrogance. Arrogance, somebody who fluffs themselves up, somebody who inflates, who puffs their chest out and says, hey, I'm important. In fact, I might even be more important than you. I might even be more important than everybody. That's the Chomet's personality. The Chomet's personality, dangerous stuff. Dangerous stuff. You can just literally fall out of the bottom and you're going to land up in a lot of trouble. Stick with that arrogance and you'll never listen to anybody's constructive criticism. Keep that high nose in the air kind of an opinion and you won't learn. And then you make mistakes and terrible things happen. It reminds me a little bit of the, that horrible story of the, I don't remember when it was, but there was that flight on Korean air where the pilot, because of the hierarchy in Korean society where you don't question authority and it's kind of reinforced by that authority the plane crashed because the co-pilot was unable to speak his mind about the mistake he felt the pilot made so that's what happens right the chet mentality is only one way to go and that's down because you've blocked yourself from growth by taking an arrogant position the hay of matzah matzah is a flatbread matzah doesn't inflate itself matzah is the symbol of humility well as long as there's humility in a person then that person is good they've always got the opportunity for growth for growth they might listen to what somebody has to say they might take seriously the fact that they have to be introspective and they have the potential for growth so now that raises a magnificent question something that you really got to think about Matzah is so powerful. Matzah is the food that represents humility. And humility is such a central theme to Judaism. Moses was considered one of the most, no, not one of the most, Mo Moses was considered the greatest prophet in all of history. And he was equally considered the most humble person in all of history. In fact, that's the great accolade that God personally gives to him. Humility is a big, big deal. Maimonides writes that generally in life you should find a middle ground, except when it comes to arrogance. There you should run for your life. As the expression goes in the Talmud, me'oid, me'oid, hevei shefal ruach, that you should be exceedingly humble or of a humbled spirit. It's like a really, really big deal. So if matzah is the food that reminds us of humility, how come it is that we don't eat matzah more frequently during the course of the year? Don't you think we should do with a, a humility injection from time to time? Yeah, you've got one week out of the year. That's it. This is the time to completely focus on humility. But what about the rest of the year? I don't know. Might have been a good idea to have matzah once a month on Rosh Chodesh. You know, as you start a new month, just a quick reminder that humility is really, really impo important. You know, start there. You know? or, or perhaps what we should do is we should have three Pesachs or four Pesachs a year where we eat matzah. Not with all the other things to do with Pesach, but just as a reminder of that humility because it's so important. Instead, what do we find? Instead, we find that matzah has its once a year appearance 
And chometz is served at our Shabbos table every single week. We have challah every single week. Isn't that a little bit odd? You know why it's, it's odd? Because if you look at the temple, when you would bring flower offerings, which was a thing, you used to bring flower offerings in the temple. So when you look at the temple, those flower offerings were not allowed to be leavened. All year round, you had to make sure that they were unleavened. That makes sense. You're in God's presence. This is a time for extreme humility. Makes a lot of sense. There was only one exception, by the way, and that was the single day of the year, the holiday of Shavuot, where they used to bring leavened bread as part of the temple proceedings once a year. And our lives are exactly the opposite way around. We've got leaven all year round. We celebrate a challah, big deal, every single Shabbos, twice on the Shabbos, maybe even three times on the Shabbos, maybe even four times if you include the Malava Malka that you're supposed to have after Shabbos ends. And Matzah, one week, and maybe you'll have a nibble on Pesach Sheni as well. How come is that? So here's a thing that's really important for us to remember, and that is it's all well and good for a person to have intense humility, but it's equally important for a person to know how to move themselves from an arrogant to a humble position. And that's what Chala represents. It starts with the letter Chet, which is the letter that symbolizes arrogance, and it moves to a hay. It moves to the ladder of humility. In other words, it says, in your normal context, not when you're in a special occasion, Pesach, remembering the great miracles that surely should humble us. Wow, look what God did for us. And not just when you're in the temple, a place of overwhelming godliness, do you feel humility. But even when you're eating challah, even when you're in the normal world, going about your day-to-day business without that spiritual consciousness, even there you can move the chet to a hay. Even there you can shift your perspective. And it's interesting because if we talk about stress, and this is clearly something that's not, not going to be comfortable for everybody, but if we think about stress, stress is related to an arrogant perspective. Stress is because I believe that things should have been this way, and they're not. I believe that I should be able to control things, and I can't. That's where stress comes from. Stress is an outgrowth of an arrogant perspective. So if we're going to, if we're going to uh, talk about stress and how to solve it, Chala's great. Because Chala teaches us how to move away from an arrogant position where I think life is supposed to go a certain way and I'm really annoyed and freaked out if it doesn't or I'm anxious that it won't to a position where, okay, I'm humble enough to accept that maybe my perspective isn't necessarily the way things have to work out. Here's a a WhatsApp that says, maybe taking challah is a corrective measure for Adam and Eve's sins, as when taking challah we acknowledge that God owns the world by putting part of it away, whereas the sin was taking from God's world against his wish. Just a thought. It's a beautiful thought, that, by the way. That's very, very nice. And then uh, continues, the WhatsApp continues, also the difference between ches and hay is a small stroke, which represents a small amount of time. The difference between chometz and matzah is a small amount of time. That's true. The shorish, the meaning the the uh, 
grammatical root of the word chometz is the same as lachmitz to miss an opportunity. When a mitzvah comes your way, don't miss the opportunity. These are really great insights. Thank you very much. A little bit of time makes all the difference. And being willing to let go and give something to God. Absolutely. Keep on coming. Love the insights that we get on the show. And I'd love to hear yours as well. 34519, if you are going to SMS your thoughts. Otherwise, WhatsApp them on 0618951019. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Nice tweet over here from at very Jackie says, Chale is a good reminder that number one, all my needs have been met. Food, home, functioning body, and sound mind. Secondly, that God is the source. Thirdly, I feel helpless at times, but I know how to survive, how to turn simple resources into something glorious and nourishing others nourishes me. It's a really nice insight. So we're talking today about challah and we're talking about the process of taking challah, which means when you bake bread, you remove part of the dough and you dedicate it to God. And I'm arguing that this is a tremendous tool for de-stressing, for releasing anxiety. Why? Well, because anxiety and stress and all of these things are tied into a sense of arrogance, which incidentally, arrogance and insecurity go very much together. The person who pushes out an arrogant persona is quite often insecure on the inside. So here's where things get really, really interesting. You ready for this? Here's where it gets really interesting. Step out of the color discussion for just a moment and think this. You know, there's a kind of art, I think they're called pointillism, where the picture is made out of tiny, tiny little dots. And if you stand up close against the picture, it looks terrible. It looks like chaos. Just these dots all over the place, different colors. When you step back and you have the opportunity to see it from a distance, all those little dots coalesce and you get this magnificent piece of art. Sometimes it feels like the world is that way. You know, when you're in it, when you're on the ground, things look so chaotic. I mean, think about any conversation that you had in the last week. I can guarantee you that the conversation you had in the last week included one of the following topics. Oh, my gosh, this flu. Everybody's got the flu. Or have you heard this terrible thing happened? Or I can't believe that the lights are out again. What is this place coming to? Or... They didn't collect the rubbish, or the government is corrupt, or there is rising anti-Semitism, or whatever. When you're in it, when you're in the situation, the world looks incredibly chaotic. When you, for me, the best example of this is when you drive in the traffic. When you drive in the traffic, think about it. Think about it, and you might be driving the traffic right now while you're listening to this. So think about what it's like driving the traffic. You're on edge. That person's going to skip the red light. This person's going to cut me off. That one's driving like a mashuganah. That person's on their phone. They're not looking where they're going. Who knows if I stop at the next corner, it might be a smash and grab, God forbid. That's what's going through our mind. Threat around every corner. The world is this chaotic, disconnected place. And I have to be arrogant. That means to say, I have to care about me because if I don't care about nobody else out there cares about me. Everybody else is, is a potential hazard to me. So I need, I need to care about me. Same thing in the business world. The markets are like this. The competition is like that. Our product is like this. I've got to care about me. Otherwise, who knows what's going to happen. When you have a whole lot of people who just care about me, you don't really have a functional society. Now, I remember many years ago I had the opportunity back in the day when they used to have the, the traffic chopper. I don't know if you remember that, the traffic chopper. So I was fortunate. Uh, I was able to go on the, the traffic chopper for their, their morning run. And it was fascinating, you know, being up there in the air looking down on the highway. And you know what the highways look like from the air? Fascinating. You know what they look like? 
They look like these natural streams where in place of water or in place of the blood that courses through our veins, it's just cars. And everything seems to work just perfectly. And when you're up there, you can't obviously see the frustration of the particular drivers. Everything just seems to work. You know, they, everybody's moving in a certain direction, depending which road it is. Will determine how crammed together they are and how fast they're moving. But generally speaking, everybody's moving and it looks like they're pretty much moving where they need to get to. That's what happens when you have a higher perspective. When you have a higher perspective, you see, you know what, actually, things work. There's, there, there are patterns. When I'm inside it, I don't necessarily the, see the pattern. I just see the dots. But when I've got the benefit of seeing things from a higher perspective, I see that this pattern and things actually work. The chaos itself actually works. You know, when you're in the storm, it's horrible. When you're, when you're the eye in the sky, when you're the satellite looking down at the storm, it's like this beautiful painting, you know, like this, look how the clouds look. Yes, that's a hurricane. It's destroying people's lives. Yeah, but from up here, it's just like, this beautiful kind of an experience. In other words, what happens is there are two ways that we could look at life. We look at life from the perspective that everything is granular. Every single piece of life is independent. Every single person is on their own mission. Every single thing that I hear about that is frightening in the world is yet another load on my shoulder. The economy, the climate, the political situation, the crime situation, another thing, another thing. It just weighs me down. There's so many pieces to this puzzle, and I, I think I'm going to drown inside all of them. That's where stress comes from. And the response that we have to stress is this chet response. Oh boy, I better build myself up. Me, me, I have to save me. Nobody else is going to save me. Nobody else out, out there cares. If I would stop on the side of the road, nobody would stop to help me. You live with that kind of perspective, as most of us do in the 21st century. Scary world, very stressful, and we're all on some kind of meds. That's the flower perspective of the world the chet the beginning of the process the whole world is like flour the whole world is granular the whole world is disparate disconnected chale is the process of bringing that world together so chale says i'm going to take all of those tiny granular pieces and i'm going to put in a bonding agent and the next thing i know it's no longer going to be flour it's going to be dough dough a single piece of dough it's all connected it's all connected. The whole thing balances out. You know, we spend so much of our time in life focusing on all the things that are going wrong that we miss the things that balance those things out. Just yesterday, somebody was telling me that there's a new technology apparently in the agricultural place, in the agricultural world in Israel. And it's to put these sensors into plants Based on those sensors, the irrigation system detects when the plant needs to be irrigated and if it needs any additional nutrients. Think about that for a second. Here we are living in a world where people are constantly going on and on about how we are stripping the world of all its resources and we're overpopulating the world and we're not going to be able to survive. And then Hashem balances it. He gives wisdom to people to be able to come up with a way to get better yield out of the crop. And that's just one little example. We spend so much of our time trying to micromanage the world that we live in by identifying all of its hazards and then trying to plug them to protect ourselves. We don't see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that Hashem's got this. He's got a plan. Something happens here. 
It's mitigated by something that happens there. It's all one big piece of dough where everything is absolutely interconnected and balanced and managed and flexible to a healthy extent. You know what a good piece of dough is like. It stretches. It rises. It moves, but it's soft. So chale is an incredible reminder for us on a weekly basis. Stop looking at the world from this granular perspective. It's just going to trip you up. Start learning how to look at the world from a cohesive perspective. There is a baker who's taking all these tiny little pieces and rolling them together into something that is, it's all cohesive, it's all balanced, it's all worked out, and it's all headed in the right direction. Maybe you can't see it. That's fine. That's because you're in the process. And very often in the process, you can't see the process. But he's got this. He's got this. You can step off. You can let go of the drivers, of the steering wheel. He's got this. That's the first thing or the big thing that Khaled teaches us about stress. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. And then if you think about it, so we're talking about Chala over here today, and we're talking about how Chala is this, this amazing meditative insight that you can use on a weekly basis just to help re-figure, reconfigure how you see the world. So um, we had that WhatsApp before that actually mentioned this. Part of what you do with the Chala is you, you, you make this dough, and then you take part of the dough, and you, and you elevate it. And that's the way of saying, I take part of the dough, and I give it away because I recognize that that's how balance is created in the world, not by taking, 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 by sharing as well. And why do I share? Because I acknowledge that there's a higher power, and I'm responsible to that higher power, and I acknowledge that that higher power is in control, and I acknowledge that that higher power is inherently good. So that means the world is in good hands, and my hands are not better. <laughs> my control is not going to be better. Now, what happens to us a lot of the time, of course, is we have great ideas in theory. We all know, like one of my favorite cliches, that the difference between theory and practice is that in theory, there is no difference, but in practice, there is. So we have these wonderful ideas, and we talk about them, and we learn them, and everybody says, wow, that was really, really interesting. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate into our reality. So the final step of challah is that you bake it. It's not, none of this is incidental or accidental. You take these disparate pieces of grain and you mold them together to become dough. That's the first step, seeing unity, seeing a thread, seeing a commonality to what life is all about. And then you stick it in the oven and you, you heat it up. Heat is a very big part of the process because heat represents enthusiasm. Heat represents passion. As long as an idea is just an idea that you've got parked somewhere in your head that you've filed away for the day where you have to bring it out, okay, that's no guarantee that you're actually going to live this way. But once you start to become passionate about it, you become enthusiastic about it, look at this. I become, I'm like actually excited to look at the world through this lens. I'm excited to look at the world and see the homogeny, see the oneness, see the godliness, see the factor that brings it all together. So once I'm in that headspace, I start to become warmed to the idea. I start to become enthusiastic about playing a role that is not just about me, but that's about celebrating this oneness and creating this 
this unity in the world. Because ultimately, that's why we're here. We say it every single day in our prayers, right? Shema Yisrael, right? Hero Israel. Hashem is our God. Hashem Echad. Hashem is one. It does not say Hashem Yochid, which would imply that God is the only one. We say specifically Echad. And the Talmud says that Echad represents the Aleph, the first letter, represents that God is one. The Chet, the next letter, represents that there are multiple dimensions to existence, seven heavens and the earth. And the Dalet, the third letter, represents the four corners of the earth, the four directions. In other words, God is one, not just in some sublime, spiritual, elevated, abstract reality. God is one right here, right here, in the traffic, right here, in the economic turmoil, right here, in all the challenges that I might have in my life, where it looks like everything is pulling in different directions. Hashem Echad. God is one, the unifying force and factor. And that's how we're supposed to look at the world. Chala, every single week, helps us to remember that. It helps us to remember that what looks like flour can be turned into dough. And it helps us to remember that dough is something that can be baked into bread. If you use heat, enthusiasm, passion, and excitement for the right ideals, you land up with something that is as spiritually or intellectually good as that del- delicious piece of challah. So now that I've wet your appetite, I'm sure that you're going to have a little bit of extra challah <laughs> this Shabbos. And when you do, or even better, when you make it, pause for a moment and just think that this is an incredible insight into how we could see the world from a healthy perspective and live more healthy pe- as more healthy people, knowing that Hashem is in charge. On that note, I wish you a delicious challah and a great Shabbos and... A great week ahead.